0: Welcome to the Jess Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership, where I interview all sorts of people I'm interested in. And this episode, it's Eric Chan. Eric, uh, Aura is pretty impressive. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about
1: it? Yeah, so Aura is a um, $1.3 billion dollars funds under management um, asset management firm. Um, we cover alternative investments, mainly uh, venture capital, private equity, and alternative credit.
0: Um, we are spread across Australia and Southeast Asia with offices in Sydney and Singapore. So, um, you know that those are some pretty impressive numbers. How long did it take to get that kind of AUM? Twelve years. So we started back in two thousand and ten, and definitely
1: the growth was not linear. It was um, there was definitely a bit of a J curve. Um, most of that growth probably came through in the last sort of six to seven years, um, and part of that was our expansion into into Singapore.
0: Okay. So, like,
1: how much was it in the early years?
0: So we
1: probably. I mean, we obviously started at zero, and then our first um, fund that we launched was back in 2013, and that was only a three and a half million dollar fund. It was a single asset fund for one single investment, um, and that kind of became a bit of our playbook um, in the future. How we raise money, um, and then we probably were about a couple hundred million for
0: first five years or so, and then it really took off thereafter. Do you remember how many years it was when you passed the billion mark? It would have been two years ago. Congrats. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, my very first question is th- there's so many folks in the industry that would like to have those kind of numbers that don't. What are some of the things that you think you've done different that that's attracted that kind of, that kind of uh, assets?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think part of it is, is definitely um, creating a point of difference in the products that you um that you launch, um, you know, for us, we started in venture capital in Australia um, back around 2010. Actually, when we started our business, we weren't in a funds management business. We were actually a corporate advisory business. Um, we'll, we've always the ambition to be an investor, but we knew back in 2010, you know, both my co-founder and I, you know, we didn't have a track record. We didn't have a brand, you know, and we probably look a lot younger than we were. And we were running around town trying to raise money from high net worth individuals. And we just knew it was going to be very, very difficult. So we started as a corporate advisory business, advising Mm -hmm. early stage startups. Um, and then kind of, when we kind of built a bit of a presence in a client base, we went into asset management, um, did our first fund in 2013. Um, and from there we kind of grew up, um, grew up as a, um, fund management business, but you know. We our passion has always been in venture capital, but we knew over time that it was very difficult to just say in venture capital, especially really early on, when people were only allocating a very small amount of their capital um, of their whole portfolio in in VC. Um, and also, we acknowledged there was a I guess a risk in our own business where you know VC it's great when the market is growing and everyone wants to invest in high in high growth investments. Um, But when the market is bad, like right now, you know, it's very difficult and people will tend to be more conservative and want to invest in the sort of um, happy to take lower yields, um, but, you know, be more capital preservation. And that's why we kind of started expanding into other strategies. And we just thought, you know, what's more, um, you know, we're we're already at the most extreme end of the spectrum. Let's go in the safest end of the spectrum, which was credit. And then we kind of expanded into also private equity kind of, which was kind of in the middle thereafter as well. There's...
0: So many interesting things to pull out in there. Um, why do you think that so few firms recognize what you did about the cycles and that you're going to want something to, uh, to cover for when the market turns?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I think um, and there, there's, there's no, I guess, um, perfect answer to actually or a perfect way to actually launch a funds management business. But there's certain. It's definitely certain people which will just fully focus on venture capital. You know, you have a lot of these very successful VC firms, um, and that's 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 important when you're kind of wanting to build a brand and presence around VC, and you want to demonstrate to your LPs that you know that is what you're really good at, and that and if you ever want to invest in the VC, um, that's what you should you should come to me. Um, but then you know, for I guess other people where. They are diversifying in other asset classes, they don't get that kind of benefit i guess um in terms of being focused um so you you typically often kind of um get investors or l p s where they 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 question whether you know should I be investing in someone that's a little bit more- um i guess specialized or someone that's a little bit more general um and then for us what well, we we all, i guess we acknowledged that as we were growing our business. Um, and we did do other strategies as well, but we decided that actually, you know, we we do need to be more focused and we kind of pulled back a lot of the strat- up some of the other strategies that we were doing um and just dropped them. Um and then kind of reminded ourselves that we just needed to build squads within each of these strategies and have no single team kind of crossing over multiple multiple strategies so that we are building, I guess, individual business units um covering each strategy within the business so that when people think about us from a venture capital perspective, you know, we are the venture capital firm that people should allocate money to as an example.
0: You know, uh, one of my business heroes is David Rubenstein, one of the co-founders of Carlisle. And he talks about just like how much people made fun of him when he first started doing this. And they they called him like the McDonald's of funds because, <laughs> you know, he had, he you know, started in leverage buyouts, you know, became PE. But then he's like, you know, he realized that that his customers were also looking for for debt opportunities and and some credit exposure, and so he they went out and recruited credit experts to come run that, and they wanted venture, so they recruited venture experts to come run that for them. And he was like he was like being made fun of until Blackstone and everyone else in the world started copying them because it works, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the other benefit of what we're doing is that you know we cover i guess a wider life cycle of our founders right so you know we cover already obviously the early stage of their um, life cycle through our fee. but as they get bigger you know when they need a credit opportunity there's potential for that from through our credit teams and then all if they kind of get into a much larger stage if they want to ipo etc then that's when our private equity team could come in as well so we kind of cover the i guess investment requirements for our founders throughout their whole life cycle.
0: Yeah, and then post-exit, get them with, the, with that cash, right?
1: Ab- absolutely. <laughs> actually,
0: I love 50 of our um, founders are actually LPs and our funders as well. That's fun. So, you know, I definitely get more Americans and, and folks in the UK and Europe on here. Uh, I'm not sure everybody recognizes just how many great companies come out of Australia. You know, I was lucky enough to have one of the co-founders of Canva on the show and you know, I think Cameron and those guys were the first venture backed uh, billion dollar unicorn, right?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. I mean,
0: um, the other well-known unicorn that came out of Australia is obviously
1: last year, but they weren't venture backed. Right. Um, and you're, you're right. I think, and it's actually more so in the last few years where, um, we've started to get a few of these unicorns come out of Australia where people are um, taking notice, but Australia has been a great, um environment for um launching technology, right? I mean, Wi-Fi came out of Australia out of as it, an example which a lot of people don't know. Um and you know, one of the things that one of the risks that we identified when we got into venture capital really early on was actually the lack of liquidity in Australia. Um for example like a lot of overseas VCs weren't investing into Australia. Um and what can t- tend to happen was that you know a, a startup in Australia will often outgrow the capital um, capacities of Aussie species, Um, but then they weren't big enough or they haven't shown enough tractions in the US or in Europe and in order to attract capital from offshore species. And they were also not really kind of looking in Australia. Um, but in the last few years, you know, we're obviously seeing like guys like Tiger, Sequoia, you know, GGB, et cetera, all kind of, I guess, um people opportunities in Australia because they they've now noticed that you know great companies do come out of Australia as well
0: yeah um I I love Australians they're fun they're funny uh they don't take themselves as seriously as, as some <laughs> other places uh and they're just like welcoming I'm wondering this is this is according to Jess uh but um I'm wondering what kind of advantages you think that gives for startups to have that kind of a culture. Yeah, look, you know, it definitely allows you to just give
1: things a go, right, um, in Australia. So a lot of, I've I noticed a lot of Aussie founders, they, they're great young guys that, you know, haven't even thought twice about running a startup. They just left their jobs and they come out and they just give it a go and everything they do, they just give it a go. Um Definitely a lot more relaxed in terms of, um, you know, finding the need to demonstrate um, their, um, finding the need to demonstrate whether, you know, they can do it. They can, they just kind of take the leap of faith and actually just, you know, give it a, um, find the opportunity and just give it a chance. So hopefully, you know, some of those kind of characteristics um, actually has helped uh, push a lot of. I guess individuals kind of just come out and just start a startup.
0: Which is funny when you think about, like, th- there can be negatives of not thinking hard enough about what we're doing, but but how many of our regrets in life are from what we didn't do? So many, right? Yeah, absolutely. And
1: and and you're right, right? Because I think, you know, um, early on in the days, when, when I first started my business back in 2010, you know, one of the best things I ever did was actually just go, you know what, like there's no better time to actually start this business. You know, as I get older, as I get more responsibility of responsibilities, it would just get more difficult. So I might as well take um take the leap of faith now. And my advice to people during that time was always, you know, just give just give it a go. You, there's no downside, right? You can always go back to your I mean you're good at your job, you can always go back to your job and someone will hire you. Um but nowadays, it's actually so easy to start a startup. People often forget about, you know, thinking through, am I solving the right problem? Do I need to solve this problem? Um, and and they just dive straight into building product, right? Um, so you're, you're absolutely right from that perspective.
0: It's like, it's like a balance beam where it's so easy to underdo it or overdo it, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I know you have offices all over the place. What, what city are you out of? Sydney. Is that where you grew up, or where did you?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Sydney. Um migrated here when I was five with my family, um, and then just r- were, did all my schoolings in Australia and built my business um, initially out of Australia.
0: Oh, where did your family come from?
1: Hong Kong. Oh.
0: Um, I'm I'm interested. You know, we hear so many stories about you know immigrants are four times as likely to become millionaires, at least in America. <laughs> um, and I'm interested in what kind of advantages you feel like growing up in the family you gave you.
1: I think what I definitely learned um, through my experience was that you need to take every opportunity presented to you and to just give it a go. Um, and also, you need to work hard to get what you want to achieve. Um, and I think that's that's also a bit of a cultural thing, right? Um, you know, as I was growing up, I've always... You know, I'll watch my dad go to work every day. I mean, even till now, I think he's you know, he's in his late sixties. He still works seven days a week. To the point where I don't think that he can stop working because he's just in so much so in love with it. And at the beginning it was like, because that's what he had to do. If I don't work seven days a week, if I don't work hard, how am I gonna afford to, you know, um pay for everything that I need to pay for, um, for my family and move them to a country. Um, and then also You know, because when we moved over there, it was during this period of time where I called it the great migration because, you know, everyone in Hong Kong was worried about what would happen after 97 when um, China would take back over um, Hong Kong and there was a lot of fear and people would just, I guess, migrate into other Um, countries. But the problem was, you know, um, people, a lot of the um, income was coming from the dad's. Right, so the dad will often stay back in Hong Kong, and the rest of the family, um, the moms will take the kid and migrate to a different country. The bravery from these mothers, um, my mother, right, um, in taking three, four kids outside of a of her own comfort zone into a country in which where she didn't speak a word of English, um, to raise us purely just because you know it was the best thing for us. Like, there's a lot of learnings from that that I took from you know what my mom and my dad actually gave up for to give us a better
0: life it's so easy to discount that bravery looking back when it all worked out yeah that's right but but think about like think about entrepreneurship and investing and the requirement to be able to deal with uncertainty I mean your mom is the only one with a major uncertainty there right?
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean like if I look back like she would have made she would have had great characteristics like good down
0: though <laughs> no kidding uh before we move on what, what's one other trait you admire about your mom she's passionate
1: um she's loving and she's caring and i think i picked that up from her um in sort of my way of life which is you know you treat people not the way that you necessarily want them to treat you because you just treat them the best that you can and don't sort of ask for anything in return. Because if you treat people expecting them to treat you the same way, then you could often get disappointed. Um, but then also, you know, then you're not really doing it for them or for the benefit of them. You're doing it really for yourself because you want them to treat you better.
0: Uh motivations matter, don't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, so how big is your team these days?
1: So we're a team of about fifty-two people now. Um about half of that's in Australia and half of that's in Singapore.
0: When you think about expanding internationally, you know, it, it's something that can be quite scary to CEOs and founders or fund managers or people like that. Um, making that leap and, and heading over to Singapore, what, what kind of lessons do you have for the rest of us who haven't done something like that yet?
1: The lesson I took was you, had, you have to have one of your founders be
0: in the region, like,
1: so with how we started was we we knew that Southeast Asia was a great region to expand into because it was we just acknowledged that it as you know the fastest growing growth corridor around the world um, and it was beneficial not only for us from a deal flow and um, investors' perspective, but also we figured that it was a great place to build networks so that we could help our founders expand into that region even when they want to um, but when we first started. Again, there was a bit of uncertainty whether it was the right thing to do, so we we basically hired someone to basically um, lead um, to grow a beachhead out of, out of Southeast Asia in Singapore um, which was great. like the, um, you know he's still a very valuable part of our business. Um, he was great. Um, but where we really started taking off was when one of my co-founders moved into Singapore, and it wasn't it wasn't a i guess um, a reflection of um that we didn't have the right team over there. I just think that, you know, you need a founder mindset to build a new
0: to start a new region. Because it's almost like starting a new business. Right. That's really insightful. Um I'm interested I think sometimes uh I've had people in my life who have kind of looked at some of my co founders and thought that you know, maybe their skill sets weren't as important as mine. And they say, Oh, why do you have those co-founders? You don't need them, Jess. And and things like this. And so my my brother and my mentor starting back twenty one years ago, John Verhessen, we we've done all these different things together. We made a lot. We lost a lot. We made it back. We lost it again. we made it back. You know, like we've just been through this the ringer together, right? Yeah. And for me, I have a hard time describing like why i don't want to do anything without them like i can hire lots of employees but i can't hire that that co-founder mindset how would you describe a co-founder mindset i believe it's the trust that you have with your co-founder because
1: you know it's great to have complementary skill sets but great co-founders are ones where um you also have i guess different perspectives and views on things and sometimes you often get into a position where you know you just both don't agree on the same thing and it gets to a point where you just have to trust the other person and allow them or allow you to do to to follow one path right because otherwise you just kind of get stuck in one position and it's in, in a stalemate position and if you don't if you've only just met someone um, and you kind of brought them in as a co-founder, you just, it's very difficult to build that trust um, with that person immediately. So even with my co-founder, I've known him since I was 14, right? Um, you know, he I met him when I was working at a KFC down the road from his place. And, you know, he used to come over and trying to get free chicken from me. Um, and since yeah. then... <laughs> it sounds and, like not just yeah. here. Yeah. And then since then, like, we've been great best friends. You know, we've done a bunch of side hustles when we were growing up. Um, And I just know that, you know, even if I disagree, and if I kind of just sit back and go, okay, this time you you go with what, let's just go with what you think. I can trust, whether it's right or wrong, I can just trust him to do the best that he can. And I can just trust his perspective on things. And I think that trust is very important. And you just don't get that um, with anyone. and you know, it's definitely more important than having someone that have a different skill set or have a specific skill set, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, we have a code, code word for it that my brother invented. He says he goes out a hill to die on. <laughs> like, is this <laughs> a hill to die on for you? Or he'll be like, this is a hill to die on for me. And that's like yeah. signal like Yeah. Like, how <laughs> do you mean it? Because I really mean it. And like It's it's almost like a marriage in ways where it's like, you know what? I can give him this one. Like, I, I disagree. But I don't think it's gonna wreck the company. Yep. And and I'm willing to take it on faith. And I'm like, you can take this one, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, sometimes I feel you know sometimes I have met co-founders where, you know, they've just met each other because one person had the idea and he's like, okay, I need a technical co-founder, and I just go around and you know, just I met this guy at an event and I just brought him as a co-founder. I thought he was great because he you know, he was also interested in my ND. I always feel like, you know, like you said, it's like a marriage, but it's also like, you know, it's like living with your um, partner before getting married, you know, and if you've never, you've seen so many relationships where they haven't lived together and they break up because, you know, they've they've just discovered things about them that they don't love. Um, after they live together and then the marriage kind of breaks apart. It's similar to like just finding a co-found at an event that you met it, you know, for a month or two months and you decide to go on this lifelong journey with them, right? It's very, very difficult. I mean, it's, some do succeed, but it's, it's, it's a roll of dice, right?
0: Well, um, I heard somebody say it, that uh, sharing a bank account is fertile ground for growing a disgruntlement. <laughs> and, and like this idea like is there any way for us to get to date before we get married can we do a joint venture can we do a profit share can we can you know can we can we do something together before we like literally share a bank account
1: <laughs> yeah know? yeah no absolutely and even my co-founder and I, um, I mentioned before that you know we've done a bunch of side hustles all the way leading up um throughout university. Um, And we kind of learned a lot about each other through those side hustles. I mean, they weren't big businesses, but it definitely allowed us to learn about each other.
0: Yeah. So, um, my next question is about scale. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of the big learnings going from managing three and a half million in that your first special purpose vehicle up to uh, you know fifty people managing over a billion.
1: So, you know, I'm a big believer that. You don't need to be the best person at everything as the founder. Um, I do believe you're as the, I guess, as the leader in the business, it's about building or putting smarter people around you, um, to help you grow that business, but one of the biggest learnings I had was actually hiring people just based on their CV, um, you know, like we, 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 we were starting to scale our business and you know, we just knew that we needed people with a lot more experience um, and that's done it before, right? Um, but we kind of took that into, and we just, I still believe in, but we took that interpretation as we just needed to find someone that worked at big fund managers, um, that, you know, has led big teams, you know, has let, managed a lot of money, so they must know a lot. Um, and we did, and that's what we did. And the problem was they just had a completely different culture to us and they just did things completely different to us. And, you know, for us, that that actually crippled our culture and crippled our business a a lot because when you put someone like that into the business and you entrench them, it's very hard to take them out because once you hire this person, you know, obviously you have a conviction in this person will help you grow the business, but you also have to convince your team that, you know, this is a person that's going to help us grow the business. And you kind of have to give him the time to actually do that. Um, But then at the same time, it's, once you kind of know if he's not the right person, it's also very hard to just go, actually, guys, I was wrong. I'm just going to take him out of the business. Uh, and let's go back to the things it is is after. I've done a you know a bit of a dance about how good this person is. Um, but the reality is we were wrong in terms of hiring this person just because he was like, you know, very senior and executive at like one of the largest banks in Australia because he was just not, he just didn't do things similar to the way that we did it. And he didn't have the right culture in, um, that we kind of um, created in the business.
0: Yeah. How do you navigate that when you realize we need to bring someone in from the outside um, and yet we're worried about not having a culture fit? So,
1: you know, nowadays we're very cautious when we hire senior people. Um, we often will, um, you know, for, for us, like the experience is important, but we actually caught with a person for a much longer period of time before we hired that senior person. And, you know, um, th- there's been like someone more recently, like we literally had courted for six months, so he wasn't even looking for a job. Um, but you know, we were basically um, just speaking with the guy for over a six-month period, you know, how we, you know, we'll go out for dinners, we'll have beers, just to build our relationship, um, because we knew that if and when he wanted to go out, he'll be the perfect person for us for a specific role in the business, um, and that gave us a lot of the comfort. Now, obviously, there's certain times where you kind of need that person now and then, but that person, was, it's hardly like a very senior person. Right? So we're typically trying to look six to twelve months ahead in terms of okay, what is the next senior hire that we need and then start thinking about you know talking to people, meeting people and start thinking maybe now networks who that person could be and start building those relationships today um, because what we don't want to do is just get a recruiter where you know they're showing us a bunch of CVs of guys that have you know 20 30 years of experience, which looks perfect on paper but just not perfect fit. It's sort of like with founders, right? Like, you know, it's very difficult to go, I I met a founder, you know, we've had two pitches and I go, okay, I want this guy I want to back for the last next 10 years, right? Which is why even with founders, we try to um, meet founders, even when they're not raising capital and try to build relationships with them to understand what they're like as as a person, as a founder, before um, we actually invest into them. Um, To the extent that there's some founders that we would have backed maybe four years after we first met them, And it may not even be the startups that they were running at the time. It was a, it's a different startup by the time we backed it.
0: That's so great advice. I didn't know what you were going to say, um, but you know, I think my mind was going a little bit more towards like the interview process or things like this. And your answer is just so much more realistic. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that answer. Really yeah, actionable. And,
1: yeah. I mean, like, you know, there's definitely so sort of things that you can pick up in interviews, right? Because I think... I, Once you've done enough of these interviews, you just know when someone has, you know, staged an answer that you want to hear versus
0: an answer that they genuinely are are, are telling you from their heart. So important. Um, uh, You know, a subject, we have so many different entrepreneurs and investment fund managers and people on the show. And something that I feel like there's an insatiable appetite for, people can never get enough information on, is fundraising. When you think about uh, lessons you've learned, what are some things that have evolved for you over the years when it comes to attracting more LPs to choose you guys? So what we do is, um, because when we started, it was a lot of high network
1: family office money. Um, That's where our LP base initially started from. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as you're moving into sort of more institutional world, um, again, like the Institutional investors are people that you need to build relationships uh, much longer before they will invest into you. Um, so even before we even think about starting a fund, if we think that we're going to be start launching a fund in 12 months' time, we'll start that activity 12 months prior in terms of meeting these institutional investors and build relationships. Um, the other thing that is important is, you know, for me, with LPs, like, there's no... It's, it's never bad to overshare um, in terms of um, sort of portfolio updates or performance, et cetera. Um, and, you know, it's an example, you know, when COVID hit um, and the market and there was a lot of uncertainties in the market and obviously certain um, certain industries were doing worse than others. So certain, certain portfolio companies were doing worse than others, you know, the importance of, the, the most important thing at that time was actually just keep constant communication with your LP and giving them as much information as possible so that you know they're not only just sitting there um, kind of sitting and guessing what's what's happening to their investment. Now the communication may not always be great news, and often you know during a bad period of time, it's often bad news, but that's okay because you're bringing them on the journey on what's happening with the with the portfolio company or with the investment. And, you know, the reality is not every, everyone, everyone obviously knows that there's always going to be good investments. There's going to be bad investments. But what I guess shocks them the most is thinking that something was a good investment and all of a sudden, you know, it actually was a bad investment because
0: I never heard, you know, I,
1: I never got communicated about that investment, in um you know, for 12, 18 months, whatever it is.
0: Yeah. Sur- surprises are typically a good thing. Right? Yes, that's right. So let's, let's go back on that journey. Let's go back a little. When it comes to working with high net worth individuals and and you're getting started, um, what are some of the principles that you have that you would, you would advise others who are working with that community?
1: Be honest um, and also be grateful. Um, Honest in a sense that, you know, again, be honest with investors in terms of what the, um, what the risk profile of that investment is, be honest with the investors in terms of how the portfolio company is actually doing um, and be honest in terms of what went wrong and sort of admit if something, um, if it was a mistake or admit that, you know, um, and just be upfront in terms of uh, what were the learnings that you actually took from, from that investment. Um, You know, I think a lot of investors will appreciate that. Um, I mean, some, may not, but then those people may not necessarily be the right investors for you anyway. Um and then be also grateful, you know, be loyal to your investors that really backed you really early on when, you know, you didn't have a brand, you didn't have a track record. And be grateful to them for giving you a chance. Um and, you know, I will always prioritize people, um, those people that gave me my gave me my first dollar over anyone else sort of later on, even if they can't write a big enough
0: check. Yeah. That's so great. Um, well, let's talk about that. What's the smallest check you've ever taken? What's the biggest uh, allocation you've ever taken? Ooh. Okay.
1: The smallest check I've ever taken is $10,000, which is tiny. <laughs> Um The biggest check we've ever taken, maybe uh, $15 million? Yeah.
0: Um, I'm interested to hear what the similarities are. Because you're still dealing with people who are handing over money who have to have faith in you. What What do you feel like is similar whether you're landing 10 grand or 15 million? So the similarity
1: between the 10 grand investor and a $15 million investor is that they both want to understand, they, they, they both want to understand the pitch, right? They both want to understand what are they investing in? What is the, what is the risk profile of the investment? Um, et cetera. And, and, and are you going to make me money, right? Um, but I guess, you know, the, the difference, a lot of the times between a smaller investor and a larger investor, it's sort of the amount of due diligence they end up doing after the back of that. Um, one other similarity would often be that the the updates that they might want to hear about, you know, like even after they invest, just because they invested $10,000, it doesn't mean that they're going to go away. And then, you know, you can just tell me if I make money or not. Um, I think it doesn't, it, it's not really a matter of how much they're investing. It's how much wealth that investment adds up to be, you know, if you're a BNA and you invest for whatever, whatever reason, $10,000, obviously you're not really going to care, right? Yeah, you're not going to spend time and effort and understand that investment, um, or following up on that investment. But if that 10 grand, it's 10% of your wealth, then you're you're definitely going to want to understand like what, what that investment is. And you're going to pick up the phone. You're going to call the investment manager
0: about, you know, what what's going on with my investment. It's something that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough. Um, you know, we, in my late 20s, when we started our first fund, I had, we'd done a retail fund. So I had, had 1,200 investors, you know, and... <laughs> And you really get a sense for what people want to know because somebody out of twelve hundred is is not going to be shy. <laughs> yeah. and I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough, and it's like what I found is the more we communicated—this is not a shock—but the more we communicated, or like you call it over-communication, the the more people could just be calm and live their life, and uh, they were they may they were such. They were so much better clients of ours when we over communicated up front. And uh, like uh, so many of my problems uh, had to do with not getting in front of that and not giving enough information early enough. I think about, you know, I feel like I've had some some big wins, but also some major mistakes in my finance career. And some of the biggest ones are somebody got a negative surprise and and I hadn't communicated enough along the way. That was, those are rough spots. Yeah, yeah no, I, I
1: totally agree with that. Um, actually, that's also why I don't, you know, it's one of the questions people always ask me is like, when is the right time for, you know, startups to get listed? Because, um, you know, in Australia, actually, you'll be surprised. Um, the requirements in listing a company is actually much lower and the size of the companies typically can be much smaller. So you often see sometimes startups listing on the Australian stock exchange, Um where they might be doing, you know, $5 million of annual (laughs) recurring revenue, right? Because it's just just another pathway of actually raising capital. Um, And then so people often in Australia will ask me like, well, what do you think is the right time to invest into um, for a startup to list on on the stock market? And I said, the reality is, I don't think startups should be listing on the stock market um, until they kind of, you know, no longer should be called a startup because, you know, founders, are already fighting fires you know, every day, fighting 100 fires every day. They're super busy. Um, but part of a listed company, part of a listed CEO or founder is that you're going to have to constantly communicate to the market, right? You have to constantly communicate to research people, which often don't really understand your business, but they just like the idea and they're investing into your business. The distraction that you're going to get from actually being listed because you have to over-communicate to the people and to the market and to research houses, it's just going to take your eyes off actually running the business and growing the business and solving those hundred problems
0: that you have every day. I'm 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 interested. In, we talked about some of the similarities. Let's talk about the differences. Um, when When you're asking for a $15 million check, what's a mindset that needs to change for Maybe it's a fund manager or somebody listening today who's like, we, you know, we have never asked for a check that big. When I get to that level, you know, what, what should I hear Eric in my ear telling me? Like, what's what's the pep talk? What's the guidance? You know, do I just need to take a deep breath and prepare for a lot longer due diligence cycle? What, what's involved?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's, um, there's definitely a long cycle of due diligence, but it's also a matter of, it's also a um, being prepared on, the, on that due diligence and having the right infrastructure. Because as an institutional investor, what people are also caring about is, you know, is your business gonna, uh, is your if your own business sustainable? Like, are you, you know, as uh, as an investment manager, is your business gonna be sustainable? Are you gonna be around for years? Um, you know, are you are your employees or your key people actually getting um, remunerated properly? Um, you know, do you have the right back office? Do you have the right compliance? Like stuff that uh, individual investor may not really care about, um, but the institutional investors are. Um, part of the reason also is, you know, institutional investors, you know, they they don't want to just come in for the one check, right? Because they every time they invest into a new manager, it's actually a lot of resources, a lot of a big investment for them. So the idea is always that they want to come in and they will write multiple checks. Um, so. They want to also make sure that you as a business is sustainable and that they can continuously partner and invest into you over time, um, you know, so long as you deliver the performance. Um, so the questioning that they're going to have is going to be very different. Um, it's, it's going to be stuff more around your business, and about your infrastructure, et cetera. Um, and you do need to be prepared for those for those of questions.
0: And can you give people some examples? Is this just like having a really well thought through data room, having, you know, investor questionnaires, answers pre-prepared what are some examples of structure
1: um so you know i will break down our data room into um, a number of segments so obviously you have just actually given just overall the business um if you actually think of it almost like you know when you go into a data room investing into a startup right um what you expect there is not too dissimilar with what your um your institutional investors are going to want to expect um, stuff about you know, um, your company information, um, your performance, but digging into actually how your performance has been calculated, um, your um, backend infrastructure, um, your team, etc. Um, whereas an individual will literally will write you a check off the back of a pitch deck, right? It's really what is the supporting information that is that is underlying this or that's underpinning this um investment presentation that
0: you've provided me. We've covered a few different topics here. What what's a question I haven't asked that I should?
1: Well sure. Um I guess learnings I guess learnings that we've had as a venture capitalist. That's that's obviously a question people always ask um for me is this, I mean, the reality is there's there's so many learnings, you know, the the even to today I'm learning something new um as an investor as a venture capitalist, right? Um, but some of the key learnings that I've had over the years is, you know, everything starts with a problem of product, right? Um, you know, you've got to build conviction in your founder's thesis as opposed to their, build, um, as opposed to, you know, the product that they've built. Because if you've got the, if you believe in the thesis, if you have conviction in the thesis and you believe in the founder and they have the right characteristics, then them, their ability to build and ship product is just, you know, part of the process. And often what you end up, when you see is that the product that they create today is not necessarily going to be the product that solves the end problem. It's just the means and ends, just the beginning of it, right? So I wouldn't dive too deep into the actual product itself, but more into the problem and the founders when you're investing sort of around the seed in series A rounds. Um, Timing matters. Like, you know, we're always looking at big markets, but, you know, it's, it's, oh, and then big problems that are trying to be solving. Um, but the reality is, you know, sometimes you could have an obvious problem or a big problem that doesn't need to be solved today because you just know that the adoption rate isn't going to be there. Um, you know, alternative beats is actually a big example of that. Right. Um, and then another example, another learning would be something like, you know, it's important to build muscle memory and identify and being able to identify patterns, um, but you know it's also a risk to actually be beholden to those patterns and making investing purely on those patterns.
0: Let me take it another direction so if somebody today is listening from Singapore or listening from australia or um what who's an ideal client for you who who are you guys perfect for so a perfect investor for us it's someone that um
1: wants venture capital as a um allocation in in their portfolio. Um, people that believe in um, thesis investments as opposed to just specializing to a single um, industry or sector Um, and people that are patient with capital, right? Because venture capital is a long game. Um, You know, it might be years before they see return on investments. Um, So they need to be very patient with the capital. Um, And then also, I guess, people that have a belief that, you know, Southeast Asia is a important region. Um, what I mean by that is one of the things that we try to do as an investor is we try to add value to our founders by providing them with access and reach across Southeast Asia um, from Australia anyway, uh, Australian founders anyway. Because what we learned over the years was that, you know, Austin founders will disregard Southeast Asia as a region when they think about global expansion just because, you know, it seems too complicated or difficult um for them compared to like the us or Europe et cetera um, While this, I don't necessarily think that Southeast Asia is also, it's the right market for um any uh, well, for every or many um startups uh, but but the but the, um, the but they need to actually assess the market um as part of the thought process as opposed to just completely ignoring them. And what we wanted to do and part of the reason why we expanded into Singapore was actually providing them with the right insights and know-hows in order for them to make the right decision or assessment to determine whether they want to expand into Southeast Asia. Um, and then so that even when they want to, we want to be there to help them and add value. Um, so for found for, I guess, for LPs that believe that, you know, adding value by giving them access to Southeast Asia, it, it, it's important, it's unique. Um, those are the right LPs for us.
0: That's great. You know, um, a mentor of mine, he's, he's a good friend we've had on the show. His name is Senthal. He runs a leadership training organization out of Singapore, training the biggest banks and the military and all sorts of corporations and stuff. And uh, it is kind of a fascinating place. If you had advice for Americans, Europeans, folks from the UK who who are interested in Singapore, what, what's a baby step? What's a principle that you would maybe tell them to, to look at if uh, if they want to explore the opportunity?
1: You know, Southeast Asia is definitely a completely different market to most, right? Um, and almost ignore everything that you've learned as what well, product market fit means in your own region, because most likely than not, it's completely different in Southeast Asia, right? Um, and, you know, the first thing you probably want to do, is understand what whether the problem that you're solving exists in that market um, or and whether it needs to be um and whether it needs to be sold, and then understand what your cust what the customers in that region actually really care about, um
0: and whether they will be paying money for it.
1: So it's almost like launching your startup again in
0: in just in the new region. It's like bringing that beginner's mindset. Correct. I love it. Um, listen. Uh, where are the best places for people to find out more about the business or connect with you online? Yes, I'm. I'm. Uh. I use LinkedIn a lot. Um, And then obviously we've got a website.
1: Um, We've got uh, aura.vc, which is specifically for our venture capital um, strategy. And then aura.co, it's our group website.
0: Well, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, what's something you want to leave people with?
1: Look, I I, I think like, um, I think people should, again, you know, as I've sort of, I've been through this journey for so long now, that, you know, I want to pass on as much knowledge as possible to people. And what I could leave with people today is probably that similar to when I first started off, similar to what we spoke about at the beginning, which is just give everything a chance, but be conscious and prepared, um, before you dive into, um, anything that you do, but don't be afraid of doing it. Um, just, but just be
0: prepared before you do it. Good Advice. Well, thanks again for making time for this.
1: Thanks, Jess. It was uh, it was great being on. Thanks for having yeah,
0: thank me. You. Yeah. Bye, everyone.